Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychotherapist and Gottman therapist, Sinead Smith. Hello, Sinead, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Today, we are going to talk about what predicts divorce. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about Sinead. For those that don't know, Sinead Smith is a psychotherapist, certified Gottman therapist, trainer, and founder of the East Bay Relationship Center in Alameda, California. She has been helping couples and individuals for over 20 years, and her writings have appeared in Washington Post, Huffington Post, and Women's Day. As a master trainer and certification consultant with the Gottman Institute, Sinead teaches and works with therapists learning the Gottman Method in the United States and internationally, and consults with organizations on promoting healthier relationships. Hello, Sinead. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great, Zach. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing quite wonderful, and I really appreciate you coming on to the show and sharing some of your wisdom and experience from working with couples. And I know that you're deep in the world of a gentleman known as John Gottman, and Some of our listeners might be familiar with the work that Gottman does in the world, and some of our listeners might have never even heard of this man. So tell us a little bit about the Gottman Institute, the Gottman Method, and what it means to be a Gottman therapist. Sure. John Gottman is a psychologist and a mathematician. Started out his career actually in MIT as a mathematician. But he started doing research with couples back in 1972 with a colleague of his, Bob Levinson, who's actually still at UC Berkeley. And the story goes that John and Bob were not very successful at having relationships with women. (laughs) So there are kind of like a couple of nerds who wanted to figure out the mysteries of love. Totally. And the thing is, it totally worked for them. So, you know, they were the first people to do any kind of extensive research into um, relationship stability And looking at what predicted, you know, good outcomes in relationships, but also what would predict relationship demise. I think before they started their research, there were only a handful of studies that had been done into what would actually predict, you know, if a relationship would not work out or not. So they really did, you know, very extensive multidimensional research with couples Mm -hmm. And the research actually is still continuing to this day. Actually, at the Gottman Institute, we're involved in a number of research studies into things like affair recovery, you know, the efficacy of Gottman method therapy, intensive couples therapy. So the research really continues to this day. You know, they've done quite a number of longitudinal studies. I think the longest was about 20 years here with couples in the Bay Area. And really what they were looking for in their research was to see if there were patterns in relationships that would predict good or bad outcomes, essentially. And, you know, when they started to do their research, they were kind of scorned 
by the psychological community because it's very difficult to predict individual behavior. And so the thinking was, well, if it's hard to predict what one person will do over time, then it's going to be that time squared, you know, in a couple. But actually what they found was the opposite, that there's a lot of sort of predictability in couple relationships and relationship stability. So, you know, these studies were going on. There's been over 4,000 couples now in their studies, been going on since the 1970s. And, you know, the first things to emerge were the patterns that would predict divorce or relationship dissatisfaction. And then later on in these studies, you know, they were able to identify patterns that were predictive actually of good outcomes with couples. So rather than just being, oh, here's what isn't going to work, they actually can tell now from the research, here are things that these couples that are doing well over time are actually doing. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have both sort of positive and negative predictive patterns that they've been able to identify. And so John Gottman, then with his wife, Dr. Julie Gottman, started the Gottman Institute in the mid-90s, really to train therapists in using the research and sort of the theory that they developed from the research, as well as trying to help couples improve their relationships. So the Gottman Institute has been around for a while now, and uh, I think has trained thousands of therapists worldwide. I mean, this sort of method is known all over the world. I myself train over in Europe, you know, there's people training in Australia, kind of all over the world, therapists have been training in this method, which is pretty much, you know, a pretty practical, hands-on approach to improving relationships, I'll say that, because the research was done with so many thousands of couples, it's been done across different socioeconomic classes, cross-culturally, you know, it sort of has really good transferability to many different types of relationships. All right. So that's a lot. So we have decades of research, decades of observation, and also decades of working with and training professionals in the field that are working with couples. So what are some key findings? What are some key concepts that you even find yourself in the therapist's office explaining to your clients? So one of the first things that came out in the research was an ability to identify couples that would break up within actually a few minutes of watching the couples have a conflict conversation. So one of the key concepts that we talk about is a pattern of escalating negativity in couples and, you know, that that being a predictor of bad outcomes generally. So one of the concepts then coming from that is really trying to help couples have more constructive conflict to sort of keep things in a more de-escalated way. And then another concept is that in order to be able to do that, uh, to have de-escalated conflict, really couples need to be spending a lot of time on energy on the friendship side of their relationship. So we're also talking a lot with them about how do you boost positivity in the relationship? So it's not just about, you know, let's solve your problem and then everything will be fine and you'll be in this great relationship. It's really about how do you have more positivity as well as decrease the negativity between the two of you? 
And then a later pattern that emerged from the research was, you know, they were able to see the couples that did well in their relationships over time tended to really be working on creating what they call a sense of shared meaning between the two of them. So they had Mm -hmm. sort of this unique culture in their relationship where they were sort of creating their own traditions, their own rituals, that kind of thing. It was sort of like what made them unique as a couple. So that sort of high level theory that's emerged from the research is really about de-escalate negativity, increase positive, and then help create Mm. this sense of shared meaning, help develop things that are just unique about your own relationship and unique to the two of you. That's beautiful. So insightful, too. We are going to get into sort of those negative behaviors that do predict divorce, but I wouldn't mind starting on a bit of a high note, of a positive note. So let's talk just a bit more about what practices couples can do to boost positivity. So you already mentioned shared meaning, is creating almost a unique culture between you two. Since you mentioned Gottman can observe in just a few minutes and predict with a startling accuracy whether or not a relationship is going to succeed or not, what are some things that you observe in positive and happy couples that you know there is a positive future for their relationship? Great question. I love to start with the positive too. (laughs) This is kind of not really, this is not my great idea. This is actually what couples that are doing well show us time and time again in these studies. And one of the ways in which couples can do that is to really work on maintaining a curiosity in each other. So, you know, when you start dating somebody first, you're kind of all about them. You want to know every single little detail about them. You're asking a ton of questions to get to know them. You know, in many relationships, that curiosity and interest can really wane over time and not from bad intention. It's just kind of life can get in the way. You know, I think sometimes Mm -hmm. couples that have little kids, you know, particularly will say that the relationship is sort of the last thing on their to-do list. But, you know, over time, couples that do well tend to maintain that interest and curiosity in each other. And they're really kind of tend to find their partners more fascinating and interesting and not less. They don't assume Mm -hmm. that they know everything there is to know. So they're asking a lot of questions about the partner's day, about their interests, about where they'd like to go on vacation Mm. and why, you know, those kinds of questions. The other thing too is that one of the research findings is that couples that will do and actually all relationships, I think this this really holds true for two, but couples that do well over time tend to really have a positive habit of mind about each other. So in other words, they're kind of looking for what is working and what the partner is doing right, rather than sort of mm. scanning for what the partner is doing wrong. You know, so an example of that would be, say your partner is picking up the dry cleaning and they say they're going to be home at seven and they arrive home at the dry cleaning, but not until 7.15. You know, a couple that is having a positive habit of mind about the relationship will kind of let the 15 minutes go and Mm -hmm. look for, okay, so they picked up the dry cleaning. That's pretty cool. You know, whereas a couple who is not in a positive habit of mind will get very hung up on the 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And not to say punctuality, can be a different issue and many couples can be a more serious issue. But it's just the point is really look for what is going well and then say that, 
you know? I mean, a lot of us, I think, are really good about knowing what our partner is doing right and appreciating it, but it kind of stays inside our own head and we don't actually verbalize it. Mm. So I think putting out the positives is a great thing. And then just I'll say kind of a last thing in terms of building positivity is recognizing what's important to your partner in terms of, you know, their preferences and their likes and really trying to kind of turn towards that. So, you know, for example, it's pretty common in couples say that one partner might like to talk a lot more about the relationship, whereas the other partner might want to do tasks around the house or something like that, you know, or be more action oriented. So say you and Isaac are in a relationship and you're the talker and I'm the dishwasher emptier. You know, (laughs) if we're going to build positivity between us, I'll make a point to sit down and talk with you about what's on your mind. And then you'll probably also empty the dishwasher for me, you know. So we're kind of turning towards what our partner's interests and preferences are rather than just focusing on our own, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just sort of off the top of my head. There are three things that really stand out. And these are really, again, are informed by research, you know, as to couples that are doing well over time tend to actually be strong in in those three areas. No, that's so important. Recognizing what is important for the other person, clearly because I find with a lot of couples and people in partnership is they often give the partner what they actually want rather than what their partner actually wants. Right. And with very good intentions behind it, usually, you know, Mm -hmm. and then kind of get hurt when it misses the mark. And when you talk about positive habit of mind, that's really interesting to me because it sounds like a lot of these sort of external circumstances that the happy couples have, that the more negative couples don't have is sort of just a mindset. They look more for what's good and lament less than what is bad. Right. And this isn't to say that you ignore problem areas, but I think in most relationships, there's bumps, you know, there's ups and downs. And to just sort of try and maintain somewhat of a positive focus on who your partner is and what they're doing right, even if you're dealing with problem areas, there's usually something Mm -hmm. that's working pretty well. It turns out that that gives couples real bang for their buck in terms of building positivity between the two of them. So yeah, you're right. It is a mindset thing. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the sort of predictors of divorce, I wanted to just ask you about what is the oft-quoted divorce statistic and almost relationship statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And then some people even add on to this that 60 or 70% of second marriages and third marriages are also likely to end in divorce. And a lot of people, you know, use this statistic as evidence that love isn't working, that love isn't meant to last, that would you bungee jump off a bridge if there was a 50-50 chance of you actually surviving? So, you know, why should we enter into, you know, these relationships. So my question is for you, because you're really deep in the world of the challenges that many couples go through as a therapist. I'm wondering, what do you think about this statistic? Like, is it true? Should we be more cautious in how we enter relationships? Are there ways to make sure we're on the right side of the 50% and not the wrong side? Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, the divorce rate has actually been going down, you know, over the last number of decades. So leaving out of this conversation, people who just prefer be single, I think what we can do to really 
increase our chances of being in a great relationship is really know what does make relationships work. Because I think there's sort of a thought that, well, if my partner really loved me, we'd stay together forever. But what I find in working with couples is that love can be pretty fragile. And I think the best relationship in the world, it's hard for that relationship to really sustain if people are not actively taking the steps to foster positivity, to really sort of tend it like a living thing. Mm-hmm. If you have a child, you don't give birth to the child and sort of deal is over. You're continuing to adapt, to evolve, to help the kid adapt, evolve, figure out what's best for it. I think a relationship is kind of like that. I mean, it's a bit of a tired metaphor, Mm -hmm. I suppose, but it really kind of has to be a verb. And I had a, a really great mentor a few years ago, you know, when I was starting to do couples therapy over 20 years ago, who would always say that love didn't save a relationship, skills would. So trust, communication are all things that will help love last. It will die on the vine if it's kind of left untended, you know, and we're Mm -hmm. not really looking for the positives. We're not really trying to have productive conflict and all of those things that I kind of just covered a few minutes ago. I think people should be cautious, but I think they should be cautiously optimistic because There is very solid research about what we can do to make our relationships work. And what I can say is in my first profession, I was a family lawyer. Oh, wow. So I did see a lot of relationships really struggle and fail. And it tended to be because the communication got really horrible and people then drifted apart. They either stopped talking to each other and they disconnected and drifted apart Or the conflict was so negative that they just couldn't kind of dig themselves out of that hole. And uh, that was sort of one of the reasons that really interested me in working with couples and particularly in Gottman is that there was just this really great body of research that we could tap into to help people. So I'm almost hearing from you that we might want to think about treating our relationship almost as like a separate entity, like a flower in our garden. And for many people, they say, do you want to, you know, get married? And they say, great. And then you kind of put the relationship like on a pedestal. Great. We have this agreement and now we're in a relationship. But instead, think about nurturing it, giving time to it, making sure it has a chance to grow and also changes the relationship and life changes. Yeah, exactly. That's a beautiful way of putting it. It's amazing you came from family law before that, because I'm sure you saw quite a lot of drama and challenges as people may probably went through divorce, huh? For sure. For sure. It's a painful process for the couple, you know, for kids, for people in their circle. You know, it affects a lot of people. Yeah. So then it sounds like you almost decided to go upstream a little bit from <laughs> from when the marriages were dissolving perhaps before they started to go this way. So let's go into these predictors of divorce. So what are the couples doing that aren't benefiting their relationship? So this was kind of the first pattern that really came out in the research as predictive of divorce and um, relationship dissatisfaction. There's, you know, people that stay together and are really miserable and, you know, that's not a great goal. So it was really this pattern they saw of escalation of negativity 
it's important to say first that conflict in all relationships is normal because we're yeah. not in a relationship with ourselves. You know, we're in a relationship with somebody that has a different body and a different brain and just is going to have a different perspective, no matter how compatible we are. So to expect conflict and that that is normal and it can be a positive force in a relationship. But what they did see in these relationships that were really headed for divorce was really four patterns of negativity that really escalated the conflict between the couple. And some of your listeners are probably familiar with what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And John named these patterns the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, based on sort of the Old Testament, the harbingers of doom and the end of the world and all of that. And because there's sort of the end of the world in relationships. So I'll just tell you what the four are. And these are patterns of interaction in conflict, right? So the first Mm -hmm. one is criticism. So Say you and I are in a disagreement about something. If I'm bringing up an issue and I'm saying, you know, Zach, the problem is you. You're always, you're never, you're this, you're that, you're just like your mother, you're just like your father. I'm describing you. That's a criticism. So it's really putting Mm -hmm. my complaint as a personality defect in my partner. So that is going to escalate if you and I are in a conversation and I'm critical of you, that's going to sort of escalate you. And then what you're likely to do is come back at me with the second horseman, which is defensiveness. So defensiveness is really warding off the criticism or the attack. But why defensiveness escalates is that it sort of bats back to me my complaint. And you take no responsibility, really, for the complaint that I'm trying to raise, even if it's in a critical way. So if I say to you, you know what, you're just like your dad, you're so selfish, you'll come back to me with a defensive response, like, well, if you weren't just like your mother, I wouldn't have to do that. You know, you'll kind of just back the tennis ball back over the net to me, and that will in turn sort of escalate me. It will keep the negativity between us going. Now, what might happen then is I come in with the third horseman, which is contempt. So contempt is the biggest predictor of divorce in any relationship. It's a bigger predictor than addictions, affairs, money problems, you name it. Contempt is our biggest predictor of divorce. And in fact, John Gottman calls it like pouring sulfuric acid on your relationship if you're using a lot of contempt. It's a really potent, powerful, negative force in relationships. And really what it's doing is it's saying, I'm better than you in some way. I'm superior to you. I might be sarcastic to you. I might use hostile humor. I might like really cut you down, you know, humiliate you. Obviously, you know, like name calling, swearing, things like that would all be considered contempt. But it's essentially just anything that puts the other person down or makes the partner feel small. What's really interesting about contempt is what they found in the research is that in relationships with a lot of contempt, the recipient of the contempt was much more likely to get infectious illnesses. You know, they were just more likely to get physically sick. And one of the ways in which they did their research is that they do physiological measures. So they would take blood draws from couples in conflict. And 
in relationships with a lot of contempt, what they found is that white blood cells would get degraded. And white blood cells are, are the things that really, you know, help our immune system will fight off illnesses. And what they found was that the contempt actually degraded white blood cells. Their health really suffered, you know. So it's a huge predictor. It's a real problem, you know, in relationships where you've got a lot of contempt. The fourth horseman is called stonewalling. And stonewalling really is kind of like tuning the other person out in the middle of an argument or a disagreement. So people will sort of shut down. They'll refuse to talk. They'll look down on the ground. They look like sort of lights on, but nobody's home. And sort of an interesting thing, what they found is sort of sex differences here with some of these four horsemen is that men in heterosexual relationships tend to stonewall a lot more than women, which isn't to say that women don't also stonewall. We do. But in heterosexual mm -hmm. relationships, sort of, I think it's in the low 80s percent of stonewallers are men. So, you know, on the other hand, they find that women tend to be more critical. And the thinking around that is that women tend to bring up more issues than men do. And so once you're bringing up an issue, you're going to be probably perceived as more critical, but we're also more likely to kind of be sharp in how we bring things up. So there's just these sort of interesting variations along sex gender lines with the four horsemen. But Regardless, you know, the four, the criticism, defensiveness, contempt and stonewalling are our four biggest predictors of divorce. Yeah. All right. So we have four patterns of negativity and I'll just say them again. Criticism, defensiveness, contempt, which is the worst one of them all, contempt, and then stonewalling. And I wouldn't mind asking just a few questions about criticism and defensiveness because this is something I also see in a lot of couples is, well, how do we delineate between, say, right criticism and wrong criticism? And how might we want to better phrase what we say in order for it not to be critical? So what I mean by that is, let's just say, for an example, like one partner cooks a meal and asks the other partner, well, how do you like the food? And the partner says, well, I think it's terrible. Like, when does feedback, when does reflection, when does our opinion on a matter turn into the criticism that might be dangerous for a relationship? Right, because we want to really talk about how we feel, right, and be authentic and all of that. Criticism generally is if you're describing the other person, the other person is more likely to feel criticized, even if that's not your intention. So to not do that, what they found again from the research is that couples that did really well over time tended to be very gentle about how they bring up an issue. So for example, mm -hmm. the meal, you've made me something rather than say, oh God, this is really awful. I might say something like, I really appreciate the efforts that you made to put this together. You know, it mightn't be my favorite thing, but I really love the fact that you were willing to put time into it. Mm. I'm going to really sort mm -hmm. of soften up the way I try and give my feedback. So another way to do that is to describe yourself as kind of an antidote to criticism. 
So rather than saying, you know, you're so lazy, you never pick up after yourself, I might say something like, you know, I feel frustrated when the house is a mess. I would really like to make a request that we put more energy into cleaning or I'd like to request that you might think about being more mindful about picking up after yourself. So I'm sort of describing myself. I'm talking about how I feel and I'm asking for something that I need rather than describing you. Absolutely. That's a beautiful phrase. Describe yourself as an antidote to criticism. Yeah. So shift from you are doing this and then you did this to, well, I am feeling this way about what the current situation. Yeah. Yeah. And you also want to like ask for what you need. This isn't really about therapy speak at all. It's just how do you want to be heard? Do you want to be listened to? If you want to be listened to, you know, there are certain things that you can do to increase your chances of that. And one of them is really just to describe yourself. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, then, if we're talking about defensiveness, you know, really the antidote to defensiveness is to take some responsibility for what your partner is saying. If I say to you, you know, Zach, this place is a mess, you never pick up after yourself, that's criticism. But if you were going to respond in a non-defensive way, you might say something like, you know, you're right. I did say I would, I'd pick up after myself. Could you just be a bit gentler in how you bring that up with me? Or you might say something like, okay, I know that that's something that really bothers you. You're not agreeing with what I'm saying, but you're trying to mm-hmm. take just some responsibility for your part in the problem. And usually, you know, most people can take a small piece of responsibility. You know, I think some people get confused about this because they feel like if they're not defensive in response to a criticism, that that means they're kind of rolling over or letting themselves be pushed around. But really what it is doing is just acknowledging that, hey, the other person, there's a complaint in there, I'll acknowledge it. And then maybe when things cool off, we can address it. But to take some responsibility for your part in the problem really will diffuse negativity. You know, it will de-escalate the person on the other side of it. That does answer what my next question was going to be, because it seems to me like defensiveness is a very natural response to criticism. Yeah. You know, if you are accused of something by your partner, it's very tempting to say, well, that's just not true. So our antidote in this case, when we do hear criticism or any of our listeners hear criticism from the other partner is first think about what about their complaint or criticism might be true and what could they take responsibility for? So how do we make sure we're taking responsibility for certain complaints without necessarily like being continuously walked over? Like you do see some couples where one partner is very critical of the other one and the other one just says, yes, yes, I know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll try to be better. And where the defensiveness has totally fallen away into almost low self-esteem. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think to think about these four horsemen is sort of like a relationship dynamic or a pattern. It's really on both people to sort of up their game here. Or like lower their game, I should say. (laughs) You know, if somebody is continuously critical in the face of somebody who's not defensive, that's another conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody should put up with 
being verbally abused in a relationship or maintaining the peace at any price. That doesn't work either. I think what we're talking about here with the patterns that are predictive of divorce is in conflict. These things tend to happen pretty quickly, you know, Mm. and so we need to be able to do sort of quick antidotes, quick repairs. If my partner is very critical towards me on a continuous basis, that's another conversation that we need to have in terms of my making requests that things need to really be done differently and describing how that is impacting me because that's sort of a pervasive pattern. I think you're talking about criticism that would need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So our antidote to criticism is first just being gentle, just being kind, and also describing our own experience rather than attacking our partner. And then our antidote to defensiveness is taking some responsibility. And then we come to our third horseman, contempt, which we say is the worst one. So how do we address this level of contempt? Is that when we call the professionals? Well, you may not have to. I mean, contempt, I think, is the hardest one to deal with because it's sort of like criticism on steroids, you know. And so Mm -hmm. the antidote to contempt, I think, is really twofold. The first part of it is really like the antidote to criticism is really instead of being contemptuous is just really to describe yourself, but then to also identify something that you do need or you do want from your partner. So that sort of puts the onus then on me if I'm being contemptuous to really ask for something that I do need rather than blasting them for something that I don't want or something that I don't need. The Mm -hmm. other part of it, too, is really overall in your relationship to try and foster this sort of culture of appreciation and respect, which goes back into that positive habit of mind thing that we talked about earlier. If I'm really looking for the great things in my partner and everything that they do right and really sort of appreciate small things that many of us sort of ignore, It's really hard for me then to turn around and be contemptuous of that person. So I would say that that two steps to that, but in the moment where there's conflict and there's contempt, the antidote to it really is to describe yourself and to identify something that you do need. And if you can Mm. put out some appreciation or acknowledgement of the other person, then you get the A plus grade. (laughs) That's all it takes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, oftentimes people are raised with a lot of contempt and they see that as normal in relationships, but it really cuts people to the quick. You know, it's the most important one to get a handle on. John Gottman tells this story, and I don't actually know if it's a true story or not, but he says that on his desk, he has a school bell. And if he's working with a couple and he hears contempt, he'll pick up the bell and start ringing the bell because he needs them to immediately stop. And it's sort Mm -hmm. of like a shock to everybody's system to hear the bell. Not many of us could get away with doing that, but if anybody could, he could, I guess. I very much appreciate your perspective that both partners are sort of co-creating the dynamics of their relationship and no single problem is one person's responsibility. But even something like criticism, like defensiveness, is something both partners are somewhat contributing to. And I'm wondering how that applies in the case of stonewalling, because there's a temptation, like one person is cutting off communication, withdrawing. It can be very tempting to put the blame on that person, on the stonewaller. So our fourth and final horseman, stonewalling, how do we address that without blaming or 
taking one particular partner as the result of the horseman? Great question. Because in some ways, it starts with the person who's stonewalling to sort of do something differently. So the antidote really to stonewalling is really to try and soothe oneself so that you can come out and sort of engage in the conversation. Typically, what's happening with stonewalling is that the person who's doing the tuning out is really overwhelmed by the negativity. And they can be overwhelmed just emotionally and shut down, but they can also be overwhelmed physiologically and kind of be in a state that we call flooding, which is in conflict. And this is pretty common, actually, is that people's heart rates will go up. If you've ever found yourself in an argument with a partner where your heart rate goes up, your voice register raises, you know, you can get out of breath, maybe your palms are sweaty, that kind of thing. That's a signal of physiological flooding. And so what happens in response to that for some people is that they shut down and stonewall. For other people, they may lash out with anger. You know, I mean, there's different ways that it affects people. But for people that stonewall, the antidote to it is really to try and calm oneself first. And people mm. will do that with a combination of sort of methods. I mean, a few things that we use here in working with couples is we'll have people really check in with themselves and their breath. You know, we might do sort of a little bit of a guided visualization, something that really de-escalates the heart rate that calms them down so that then they can engage in the conflict, in the conversation. But it is really sort of on the person who's stonewalling. They kind of have to sort of pull out of it a little bit first. And then we would work with the person, if say if their partner is being critical towards them, to really try and back off on the criticism, just talk about themselves and help the person mm -hmm. who's stonewalling really with a little bit of relaxation stuff to really try and engage in the conversation. Now, pulling myself out of the situation where I'm stonewalling almost sounds to me like more stonewalling. So would I maybe like set a time to like return to the conversation once I have soothed myself? That's a really good idea because otherwise what happens is the person on the other side of it thinks my issue is never going to be addressed, you know, and so I need to keep going with the conversation and then you'll get into sort of more and more stonewalling as the person on the other side of it gets more and more overwhelmed. But I think if you're somebody that stonewalls to say to your partner, listen, you know, we need to take a break when this happens, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to reinitiate the conversation or we'll definitely come back and talk about this. You know, they reckon it takes at least 20 minutes to really calm down. But certainly, you know, people will have a wide range with this. For some people, they'll say, you know, I'll come back in an hour. Let's talk again in two hours. Certainly no longer than 24 hours. But then the important thing to do is when you're on a break, if you're a stonewaller and you decide you need a break, you need to really be actively calming down. And so what that means is that you're not replaying what was just said in the fight. You're not rehearsing what you're going to say when you go back into it. You're really actively trying to manage your breathing. You're distracting yourself. You could watch a TV show, read a magazine, go for a run. I had a couple that I worked with a few years ago, and this is a heterosexual couple. The woman would stonewall, 
and she would start playing Candy Crush on her phone when she started. Just something to get her mind out of it. So it's a good mm-hmm. idea to sort of to separate, to not have sort of visual contact with each other and for the person who's stonewalling really to actively calm down. That is an mm-hmm. important piece of it that I think a lot of people don't know about this and they think that if they just take a break, it's all going to calm down. But actually, we need to actively get our bodies and brains out of the argument. Mm. So taking a break doesn't mean just fuming in the bathroom. (laughs) Exactly. Fuming is not good. Fuming is natural, but all fuming does is sort of keep you engaged in the fight. And that's not going to help you if if you're trying to really take a break. So I really appreciate you bringing all the antidotes for the Four Horsemen, because I know I've heard of the Four Horsemen and I've read about them. But often people just say, okay, these are things you don't want to do. And I appreciate you bringing the antidotes to them. My next question is kind of a question I'm always curious about with couples therapists is when you kind of come to the decision of should we make up or should we break up? And let's say like we've had the four horsemen and we've really dealt with them and worked through them, but we're still like thinking about like maybe getting divorced is good for us. And I know like as a therapist, you want to be that neutral third party, but I'm almost wondering like when should a couple think about divorce as the best route forward? And when should they think about the conflicts that they are currently meeting in their relationship as normal everyday conflicts that they can absolutely work through either by themselves or either with a professional? Yeah, this is a real tricky question, I think. And and people ask this all the time. And of course, it's down to, you know, any couple, what's right for them. And certainly, I don't believe that all relationships must stay together or should stay together or anything like that, you know. But I think sometimes what happens is, especially with couples that have had a lot of what we call gridlocked conflict, which is conflict that just gets really bogged down. People, every time they talk, they don't feel like they can make any progress with it. And Mm. so sometimes with those types of conflicts, people sort of say they'll agree to disagree, but they kind of disconnect because maybe each person's position in the conflict is very important to them. And if they feel like their position isn't really getting honored or respected, they may just sort of close off that part of themselves and the relationship might sort of start to disconnect, you know, have a bit of that trajectory where people are really starting to grow apart. One of the things I see is that, you know, if a couple comes in for therapy and they say, we think we want the relationship to work, I think many relationships can be saved. But if the tide has gone too far out for one or both people, in other words, if things have gotten too gridlocked, they haven't been able to make progress on the issue and they've really disconnected and drifted apart where they're not really doing a lot of turning towards each other or it feels very emotionally disengaged. That's a hard relationship really to get back on track, you know, because maybe one person is just sort of too far gone, you know. Mm-hmm. that's a situation in which it just may not work, you know, and the couple may want to consider divorce at that point. The other situation too, really, I think is where there's a real lack of respect mm. or appreciation or friendship, you know, that there's no fondness, there's no fun, there's a lack of interest. You know, if the friendship is really mm-hmm. dead and there's no interest in sort of rekindling that, that also is a really tough type of relationship to get back on track. 
it's usually more to do with how people relate to each other and how they have related to each other will sort of tell you whether they could stay together and be happy or not, rather than specific topics like there's been an affair or there's been some betrayal or there's been addiction or, you know, it tends to be more about sort of the emotional interaction between the partners that's more predictive of what can happen and what should happen and all of that. So respect, appreciation, and friendship. Such important foundations, huh? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the Gottman research was done with monogamous committed couples, but, you know, certainly we work with many poly relationships here. And I think the same principles really apply. It's really about sort of communication, trust, keeping things on the calmer side in conflict, being really sort of clear, having a friendship, all of that. I appreciate that so much that you not only telling us that the same principles apply across all relationships, but also what those principles are. <laughs> so thanks so much, Jeanette. I really appreciate you coming on the show. A huge intention behind the show was to take the knowledge that couples therapists like you have, take the knowledge that researchers like Gottman have, and just get it to more people because it is so useful. And it's something we don't learn. You know, you don't learn about the four horsemen in, in school. I think we could save ourselves a lot of trouble if we did. <laughs> me too. Me too. So I wouldn't mind closing out with a question I like to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Ooh, that's a great question. I think I would probably repeat really something that I said earlier, which is that it kind of needs to be a verb you know it needs to be mm. in action and it needs to evolve and change and that that should be seen as a good thing but we need to really tend it with a lot of friendship and a lot of care because i think it can be really powerful and in relationships that are doing well over time people become more important to each other, not less important, but only if it's really been tended actively. So there was an old self-help book, I think from the 80s or 90s that said love is a verb, but I think that's probably what I would say. I think it needs to be a verb. Mm. It needs to be an action. Love is a verb. It evolves and it changes. So important. So thank you again, Sinead, for coming on to the show. How do people learn more about you and how do people work with you? Well, you know, people can check out our website, which is East Bay Relationship Center. We have a couple of offices here in the East Bay, California, Alameda and Pleasanton. And we're doing a lot of online couples therapy now, which is kind of being a kick and is really working well. We're sort of more of a Gottman method based center. So I guess the website is probably the best way to reach us. And, you know, we're on social media, East Bay Relationship Center. And you can shoot us an email. We're happy to talk and see if we might be able to help folks. If not, we are always referring to other professionals if, if we feel like we're not the right fit. So, you know, people are welcome to email or call us. We're at 510-748-0640. East Bay Relationship Center. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Sinead, for coming on to the show. Thank you for sharing your insight and wisdom and for bringing us this important insights from Gottman Institute. 
And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you learned a lot. We hope you remember that love is a verb. It evolves and changes. We hope you remember to remain curious about your partner, to have a positive habit of mind, and to recognize what is important for your partner as you cultivate positive respect and appreciation and friendship. And watch out for those four horsemen of your relationship apocalypse. My name is Zach Beach. You can learn more about me at ZachBeach.com and learn more about the podcast at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Sinead. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. It was really fun. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.